Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And from the US, we're joined by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, with his guest. This week, we'll be discussing Andrew Bailey's appointment as the new head of the FCA and what his interview with us a few days ago suggested about his likely agenda for reform. We'll also be looking forward to the European banking results over the coming weeks. And finally, we'll be looking back at the US bank results and also what that tells us about the CCAR process. That's the stress test process in the US. First, though, to Andrew Bailey's appointment as the new head of the FCA. Martin, this is something that had been regarded, I think, as a plan B for some time. The idea was, at least as far as we were hearing it for for some time, had been Greg Medcraft, the Australian regulator, to come in and run things. Something went wrong with that whole idea. And at the last minute, the plan B had to be enacted. Andrew Bailey is the new head of the FCA. That's right. I I think to call him a plan B is a bit unfair, though. I think in in many people's eyes, he is the top candidate of of all the candidates that have been discussed in this long, drawn-out succession process. He really is the the A-grade candidate in the eyes of a lot of the people in the city. Plan B, though, because... He didn't really want to do it. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. People are surprised today, not because they don't think he's up to the job. They think he's done an excellent job as head of the Prudential Regulation Authority, uh, which is the body responsible for for the main prudential oversight of the banking and financial system. But the move to the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the watchdog, the one that clamps down on on misbehaviour, is a surprise because he was doing such a great job there at the Bank of England, at the PRA. He was respected. He was seen as having a great chance of taking over eventually from Mark Carney as governor of the central bank. So, you know, this move to a much more troubled institution at the FCA, which has had a string of controversies and has really been quite problematic compared to the PRA in the in the so-called Twin Peaks regulatory system that's been set up since the previous financial regulator, the Financial Services Authority, was disbanded. And Andrew Bailey's you know, seen as having done a great job of integrating the PRA part of the, the Financial Services Authority into the Bank of England and making that work and dealing with the aftermath of the financial crisis in terms of getting banks to raise the amount of capital that they hold uh, to improve their liquidity, to make the banking system safer, but without putting the banks at loggerheads with the regulator. Whereas the FCA, which he's moving to, really does need some stability, it needs some clarity, it needs some better governance and leadership because it it seems to have been lost to a certain extent in, in that it's taken an approach which now looks at odds with the political climate. It's put a lot of the industry's backs up, it's left people confused, it seems to have had a scattergun approach 
Bailey, I think, will do a lot of good things there. But the question is, what has he been offered by George Osborne, the Chancellor, in order to persuade him to take this job? Has he been offered, you know, if you do this job for us, Andrew, then, you know, the knighthood is awaits you? Or has he been promised that he will be able to replace Mark Carney once uh, the Canadian moves on? <laughs> Both are very likely, I would have thought, but um, we'll see. We were lucky enough to speak to Andrew Bailey a few days ago. Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, interviewed him in his capacity as head of the PRA, but actually talking about a subject which will be also important uh, in running the FCA, that is the competitive role that challenger banks should play in the UK banking system. Emma grabbed a few minutes with Andrew Bailey uh, on the fringes of an event in Durham, uh, recorded this on her iPhone, so please bear with the sound quality. Emma began by asking uh, Andrew Bailey about the relative requirements in terms of capital between challenger banks and uh, larger banks and the extent to which there was scope to simplify this arrangement and also provide a kind of glide path from so-called standardised capital requirements which smaller banks uh, have to observe and the more sophisticated uh, so-called internal model approach. There are sort of intermediate positions between sort of pure standardised and pure advanced models. So one obvious intermediate approach would be what tends in terms of trade to be called slotting. And we already use this, actually. I mean, we've because we've rejected certain classes of internal models. The most obvious case of this is commercial property, where we certainly we've said pretty much across the board to the major banks that we didn't think their models were up to scratch. And slotting is an alternative. Now, it is it, slotting is a it, it's a quotes model, but it's it's a very simple model which basically says. You know, take the basic characteristics of modelling, which is probability defaults and loss can default. Create, you know, create buckets, as it were, and sort of slot your loans into those buckets, as, as it were. It doesn't require the big overhead of, of, of internal modelling. So that is, a, that is an intermediate approach which we're, you know, we're interested in and think there's scope to use more extensively. And the overhead of that, of course, is, is much less. Uh, so that's one. The, the data question, I think, is... It's possible. It would not reduce the overhead as much because you still have to maintain the model. But what it would do is give the newer bank or the smaller bank access to more data because one of the problems we have in going on to internal models is you know, where do you get your data from or do you have to wait for a long time to generate your data uh, to do your model? Emma went on to ask Andrew Bailey about the request from the Treasury Select Committee, which is chaired by Andrew Tyree MP, for uh, him to provide the TSC with greater information about the relative capital requirements of challenger banks and large banks, uh, and specifically to lay out what the average capital requirement would be for a challenger. Well, I think, I think first of all, I mean, I think it's very sensible and, you know, you sort of agree with the sort of focus that the Treasury Select Committee has on this question. I think it's, it's appropriate. Essentially, I'll look at how you could most meaningfully do this. And no actual objection in principle. I mean, we haven't taken any final decisions, but in principle, no objection. The question that you have to think through about in terms of how you do it. Andrew Bailey there, the new head of the FCA, talking to Emma Dunkley.
Okay, on to our second topic. European banks are on the verge of reporting their full year results. We had an early flavour of what was to come from Deutsche Bank, which pre-released a couple of headline numbers. Most dramatically, news that it was going to have a, a 6.7 billion euro loss. So, Laura, does that figure from Deutsche herald dreadful news from everybody else as well? I think Deutsche really does set the tone in terms of the European bank reporting season. We are expecting a pretty grim season. So Deutsche Bank had its own particular issues. I mean, a 6.7 billion loss. This is the first time the bank has recorded an annual loss since 2008. So it's obviously bad news for them, but a lot of it comes from the litigation. So they took an extra... 1.2 1.2 billion of litigation charges in the fourth quarter. They also took big charges linked to a restructuring effort, which they're doing across the bank. So those are exceptional things that we see in Deutsche, which we shouldn't see across the other banks who aren't having to deal with those challenges. One of the more concerning aspects of the pre-announcement from Deutsche last week was that they also said they had an underlying loss of 600 million for the fourth quarter. Now, that is very bad news for other European banks particularly other European banks you have, investment banks, because some of that loss was linked to a slower performance in the trading unit where Deutsche would have a big exposure. Some other European banks who would have large trading operations include Barclays and also Credit Suisse and we're expecting some pretty grim numbers for those two as well. And is there any other kind of crossover, do you think, for, you mentioned Barclays there, but we have the UK banks beyond Barclays. Uh, Any other crossover from the US results from the last few weeks or are there going to be some very specific issues at play at the likes of Standard Chartered, RBS, Lloyds and so on? I guess when you think about RBS and you think about Lloyds, because of the big steps that they've taken to really shrink or effectively eliminate their investment banks, they are, are no longer nearly as exposed to those risks as they would have been previously. Standard Chartered is a bit of a special case. I mean, we're expecting a very poor set of results from them, but that's more linked to the wider conditions in the emerging market economies where they operate. So we're seeing some real challenges there in terms of defaults and in terms of exchange rates and the overall economic growth. So certainly Standard Chartered looks bad, but it looks bad for different reasons to those which are making Deutsche, Credit Suisse and Barclays have challenges. Well, plenty of room given that bleak outlook for upside surprises, perhaps. Thank you, Laura. Let's go now to the US where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Brian Ferran of Autonomous Research, the independent analysts, about U.S. bank results and also looking forward to the CCAR stress tests. So, Brian, the big six U.S. banks have all reported fourth quarter numbers in the past couple of weeks. What do we know about the state of the banking industry now that we didn't know before? Well, obviously, it's been a difficult start to the year. The banks, on average, are down about 15% from a stock price perspective. You know, the fourth quarter itself wasn't nearly that bad. So the banks did miss consensus expectations on a, on a cleaned-up basis kind of by 3% on average, so a marginal miss. And really, the fear or the pricing of the stocks uh, reflects two things. One is the fear the credit cycle has turned, and two, the fear that the interest rate cycle is going to be truncated and Mm -hmm. the Fed might actually have to start easing. So first, to take credit, you know what we've seen from the banks is after 16 straight quarters of beating on provisions, so their cost of credit expense, this was the first quarter in the post-crisis era where they missed consensus expectations. It was only by 3%, so it was marginal. Uh, Obviously, there was a range within that, but it wasn't a huge number. But investors always joke, you know, there's there's more than one cockroach. Once the credit cycle turns, there's never just one quarter or one industry that cleans everything up. 
within the bank's books, clearly commercial credit is the biggest concern right now. Energy lending has come clearly into focus. Investors already knew it was a problem. I think what caught people off guard in the fourth quarter was just the magnitude of change. So one way to measure it uh, is banks reserve to loans, their allowance for future credit losses. Coming into the quarter, energy reserve to loans were about 2.7%. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the quarter, they're 4.6%. So it didn't quite double, but it almost did. And, and that's a big jump in a single quarter. So that certainly caught people off guard. And then the second part is, will this spread to other industries? So the the leading indicator you look at for the banks is commercial criticized assets, and those are now up about 30% year over year. They're up for four straight quarters, and again, this is after three to four years of steady and consistent improvement. The banks will say, look, it's just energy so far, and, and the data actually backs them up on that. But again, the investor nervousness is, well, it always starts somewhere and then mm-hmm. spreads. So the same way the tech cycle in 2001 very quickly became the tech media telecom cycle, okay. you know, people are worried that the oil and gas cycle quickly becomes oil and gas, metals and minings, uh, maybe even industrials, uh, given the, the concept of an industrial uh, and recession. And this is in any way comparable to what happened in 2007, 2008 with, uh, with mortgages? I mean, there was lots of loose lending. Is, is it really serious for the banks? You know, that's starting to come into the investor discussion. I, I think it's a fair question. I mean, we've thought it's much more akin to, again, the 0102 scenario. Uh, so you get tech media telecom uh, leading a CNI business led recession. Uh, you get a modest impact on consumer credit and bank profits do drop, but it's not the end of the world. 07 and 08, the reasons we think it's different are twofold. There's many reasons, but there's two main ones. You know, one is just the relative size of the problem. So if you look at just high yield energy in the US, uh, you're talking about about $800 billion of assets. Mm-hmm. If you look at all energy debt globally, you're talking about $4.5 trillion of assets. You know, if you look at U.S. mortgages, subprime multi and home equity, which were the main problem areas, some to over $3 trillion, and all mortgages, some to about $11 trillion back in 07. Mm-hmm. So the areas that are causing the problems are just that much smaller. You know, the second reason is the banks themselves are in such better shape. So if you look at banks' capital ratios at a, at a simplistic level, you look at their leverage, tangible assets have a tangible common equity. You know, the leverage today on average about 11 times, whereas the leverage going into 07 was about 25 times. So the size of the assets that are causing the problem are about a third as big. The leverage is half what it was now versus then, and therefore, you know, it feels like the the sector should be more resilient. And what about fintech? Uh, the big banks are all very keen to tell me every time we meet about how committed they are to um, to disrupting their own industry. How much of a theme is this for, for your clients this year? You know, it's it's a big one. I think from an investable standpoint, a lot of the fintech activity is still happening in the venture capital world. So it's not necessarily something people talk about on a day-to-day basis when they're buying and selling stocks. But from an intellectual standpoint and a forward-looking standpoint, everyone kind of looks two, three, four years down the road technology is just going to become more and more important. So trying to get smart on it today, you know, there's really four big areas of fintech the banks are focused on. Mobile payments, blockchain, robo-advisors, and then marketplace lending or peer-to-peer lending. For the big universal banks, I would say right now kind of the the maximum focus or the maximum of the hype cycle is really blockchain. Mm -hmm. Uh, I say that because blockchain is really focused on increasing the efficiency of things like clearing and settlement. So if you look at the way the capital markets have evolved over the past 20 years, there's been endless innovation in the pre-trade world. You know, you can trade, co-locate a server and trade in a nanosecond. 
But in the post-trade world, your trades are still going to a reconciliation clerk and they're faxing it back and forth. And three days later, you know, the shares have actually changed hands and the money's uh, in your bank account. So people are looking at blockchain or, you know, it's also known as a distributed ledger. This is a way technology can take all those manual costs, all that manual labor and, and turn it into efficient technology-driven process. You know, it's all guessing right now, but we recently put out a report where we size the total spending or expense base against that post-trade function for the big global banks at about $50 billion. Mm -hmm. And we think about a third of that could be cut if you move to a, a blockchain-based process. So $15 billion of annual expense saves, which is meaningful for the capital markets uh, banks. Yeah. Brian Ferran, thank you very much. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio, our guest, uh, Andrew Bailey, now of the FCA, and also Ben and his guest, uh, Brian Ferran in the US. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Stab in London and Amy Keane in New York. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>